Rick for dinner, huh? And you go home in the evening. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, we are uh, in the last part of Genesis chapter 44 today. Uh, still in the middle of the story of Joseph. And, uh, and as I said uh, several weeks ago, this part of the story is really the climax. This is the watershed event in the story of Joseph. And it's, of course, that part of the story that really, at least as far as I'm concerned, is filled with the most emotion and the most pathos, and uh, etc. And it, of course, uh, this, uh, we are in the middle of the uh, second visit of the uh, second journey of the brothers to Egypt when they went back the second time to buy food for their families. And uh, uh, last, uh, the last time we were together two weeks ago, which was before Christmas, and I know some things have happened over the last couple of weeks. You probably all are uh, trying to recuperate from... New Year's Eve last night and you've had Christmas and you've had relatives and you've had all those sorts of things, but I still expect you to remember what we talked about two weeks ago. <laughs> okay, so we looked at the first part of chapter 44, about the first 17 verses uh, a couple weeks ago, and of course we had no lesson last week. So look down through that first half of the chapter, kind of refresh your mind, and let's kind of hash it around here a little bit. What do you remember uh, are some of the things that we talked about in those first 17 verses of chapter 44 the last time we were together. It, it really offended them, this idea that they could be accused of stealing this cup of... Joseph's. Okay, that yeah, they 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 thought that was pretty outrageous, and they communicate. How do they communicate that to the to the house steward? What was their argument? Okay, okay. So they kind of made a rash vow there, which they should have had a little more common sense than that, given that they'd already had something put in their bags that they didn't know about, but. But uh, what was their reasoning? Why it was illogical to accuse them of this? We brought back the money. Okay, uh, we we there was money in our sack on our first journey, uh, and we, and we brought that all the way back from Canaan uh, to return to you, and and so obviously we are honest men. We would never think to steal uh, a, a cup. What else did we talk about? Okay. 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 They make the argument. Uh, Joseph uh, does, and his and his house steward. They they uh, accuse them not only of stealing the cup, but that this cup is particularly significant because he does what with this cup? Okay, it's a divining cup. He says. Okay, is it really a divining cup? How do we know? Okay, okay. There's no indication anywhere in the whole story of Joseph that Joseph practices divination. 
he interprets dreams. Uh, he's he's uh, filled with the Spirit. God's presence is with him. When he hears a dream, he doesn't run off to his, uh, you know, his, to his divining cup to figure out what the... He just simply, you know, he hears a dream and he just tells them right away, this is what the dream means. So no indication that Joseph ever practiced divination. Okay? And none of that is completely outside of his character. He, he has this faith in Yahweh. He has this faith in God. And he always gives God uh, glory and, and recognition for the gifts that he has and for his ability to interpret. So there's no indication at all that Joseph ever practiced divination. <clears throat> and it's completely out of character for him. So we can assume then that since we know that he is to some degree constructing a ruse anyway by placing the cup in Benjamin's sack, that this is just part of the ruse. This is part of his effort to keep his brothers believing that he is an Egyptian (laughs) so that they won't discover who he actually is. So it's just part of his cover, if you will. He's not actually one who practices divination. What else did we see in that? that's, That's one of the things that I didn't like about the... I guess it's the movie The Ten Commandments. I forget. In, in one of those movies where the story is told, they have Joseph when he hears the dream, he goes off and does research. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And finds out, oh, the Nile floods every so you know whatever. Uh, yeah. And so he does this um, does this research, then he comes back with the answer. No. But there's no indication here yeah. that there was anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think it's more consistent with the gifting of God that he would just know yeah. and speak it right as you indicated. Yeah, 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 I think so. The other thing uh, in this story here that we talked about was, um, well, Joseph is very wise in, in setting up this test to see how Benjamin would be treated by his brothers. Mm-hmm. So he could test them to see if they really change. Right. And find out once Benjamin's life is on the line, are they going to just look out for themselves, or they really going to look out for their youngest brother? Yeah, yeah. And in doing that, he sets the test up to be very similar to what? What does this test remind us of? What did happen to him? Yeah, what happened at Dotham when he was sold into slavery? So he's he's really kind of putting creating a situation very similar to the one at Dotham, so that. So here we have the youngest son, the favored son, uh, and he's kind of placed in a position in opposition to the other brothers. And the test is to see how will the brothers respond to that? Will they do with Benjamin what they did to him or have they changed? And that's what Joseph is trying to determine. Um, And uh, so then the question is, is Joseph in some way jeopardizing Benjamin's life here in this test that he's constructed? Is he placing Benjamin at jeopardy here? No, because he's kind of, he's all going to say what they do. I mean, they never can. Okay, okay. It's actually, it's kind of a win-win situation for Benjamin. If the brothers pass the test, if they have changed, and if they really do stand up for their brother then, of course, that's good for Benjamin and it's good for the entire family. The family gets reconciled, etc., etc. If the brothers fail the test, then they're sent away back to Canaan and Benjamin is kept in Egypt ostensibly as a slave. But, of course, we can assume that as soon as the brothers are gone, what's going to happen to Benjamin? 
He's going to be the third most powerful. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's, of course, not going to be a slave. Uh, we can assume quite safely, I'm sure, that Joseph had no intention of enslaving his brother Benjamin. And we can see that from the way he treated him uh, at, the, at the feast, etc. So he has uh, only good intentions for Benjamin. So any way things work out, it's better for Benjamin. So what Joseph is doing is he is not only testing his brothers to see if there's some kind of family reconciliation that's possible. But he's also guaranteeing the safety of his brother. It is significant to me, and I think this is pretty clear as we read the narrative, it is significant to me that it appears that Joseph is willing to sacrifice the life of his father for the safety of his brother. And, uh, you know, that's something we could explore. I haven't really uh, planned to explore that in depth, but, it, but I think it's pretty obvious. Joseph knows by this point that, that this could be perilous for his father, uh, but he is concerned about protecting and securing uh, Benj- uh, Benjamin's life. So, Teresa, could you help there? Yeah. I'm also just far to say that Joseph also knows that if Benjamin's brothers are out to get him, as soon as Jacob dies anyway... That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as Jacob's dead, Benjamin's, Benjamin's uh, goose is cooked, so to speak. So, this is important that, his, that he be spared here. Anything else from that lesson we looked at a couple weeks ago? One other thing I was thinking about this morning, the, uh, something we don't do in our society, but when the brothers realize what happened, realize the couple's in there, it says they tore their clothes. <laughs> And just the emotional anguish that are going through. I, I just can't imagine us doing that. You know, I, I wouldn't want to tear my clothes. And and they kind of think that through a little bit. Okay, so here at some point during the day they tore their clothes. Then all the rest of the day they probably had that. I don't know if they had changed the clothes or not. But every time then later in the day they saw their clothes, they would be reminded of yeah. that. Yeah. That anguish. Yeah. Is just an ongoing. Yeah. Reminder. That's a good point. Yeah. And, People seeing them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if they went into the sea, that would, I, I don't know, that's interesting. Yeah, the idea of what that meant. Yeah, they would think, oh, that guy's looking at me. Why? Oh, yeah, yeah. Torn, clothes are torn. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it'd be a constant kind of reminder, maybe. It's an interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that aspect of it. Yeah. Wouldn't they start doing that? Like, <laughs> then, then when we, <laughs> then when people. Then when people come to church, you couldn't get away with it. And when I ask you how you're doing, you couldn't get away with just saying, I'm fine, because they'd say, you've already rent your clothes. <laughs> so they'd know you were having a bad day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. The brothers hang together here. They have complete confidence in one another. They have complete confidence in Benjamin. It doesn't doesn't cross their mind that Benjamin or any one of them could have done such a thing. The brothers are really hanging together here. And they come back, and of course Judah does step forward uh, and, uh, and, and take the leadership in this, but it does seem that the brothers, uh, at least up to this point, are, are pretty cohesive uh, in, in, the, in their approach to this thing. Uh, now, when the, when the brothers first are accused of somebody stealing the cup before the cup is actually discovered and they make this rash vow. What is the vow? The one who finds, who finds the cup is, 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 
be put to death, and then what else? The rest of them be slaves. Okay. Now, now we have to remember that up to this point in their mind, they're viewing this whole circumstance as part of the retribution of God on them for what they did to Joseph. So, in one sense, they're willing to be slaves. Uh, you know, if, if, if this ever happened, they just kind of, you know, we'll all be slaves. It's kind of a rash, rash, rash vow, of course. They don't really expect that's going to happen. But when they finally get to back to Joseph's house and they prostrate themselves before Joseph and then, and, and then Joseph accuses them of doing this terrible wrong thing and then Judah speaks up and, and he makes his offer to Joseph, what does he say? No, no. Before you're, you're jumping ahead to the end of today's lesson, before we'll all be your slaves. Okay, so he backs off the "you can kill the Benjamin" thing, you know. But he says, "We'll all be your slaves." So twice now, the offer has been made that we'll all be your slaves. Okay, and both times we saw that offer was declined. Okay, the spirit of the offer was accepted, but the offer itself, the specifics, were declined. And Joseph says, "No, we're not going to do that. That wouldn't be just." It will just be Benjamin, or the youngest. He doesn't actually refer to him as Benjamin. The youngest will be my slave, and the rest of you can go in peace to your father. Okay? And so that's where we left things last week in verse 17. Well, let's pick it up then in verse 18 uh, and read down through the end of the chapter. And uh, this constitutes the longest uninterrupted speech in the book of Genesis. This is a speech that has great significance to the Holy Spirit. He has taken time to record a fairly lengthy speech here. It is a speech that you'll see as we read it. Judah's speech here, or his plea, or his petition, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's eloquent. It is filled with passion. It is filled with pathos. Uh, as I read it, I am struck by how much Judah's words are directed right at Joseph's heart. And he doesn't even know it. I mean, he, he clearly is trying to move Joseph to have compassion on Benjamin. Okay. He's clearly, that's his intent. So he wants to stir Joseph to compassion, or as he thinks of him, Zaphonathpaneah. This is still this great ruler. He doesn't know that it's Joseph yet. So... But his desire is to stir him to compassion. But what strikes me is how Judah's words, if you put yourself in Joseph's place, you realize how Judah's words are just like an arrow that are going through the heart of Joseph. And, and what strikes me about this speech, if you want to call it that, of Judah's, is, is I can't account for it any other way than it's inspired. I just think God is giving him the words to say here. Because God has already obviously done in the heart and lives of the brothers what needed to be done. But it still yet needs to happen. What needs to happen in the heart of Joseph for full family reconciliation to take place. And it's like God just speaks directly through Judah to the heart of Joseph to cause Joseph to hear the things he needed to hear. And uh, so keep that in mind as we read this passage. He says, in the beginning in verse 18, then of chapter 44, 
Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore, uh, bore me two sons. And the one went out from me and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to shoal in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus, your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain, instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I will see the evil that would overtake my father. This is actually the fourth account of these events that we've had in this whole story of Joseph. Okay? Uh, the first account of that first visit and the discussion, all of that, of course, was the narrative itself uh, back in chapter 42. Uh, in the earlier part of chapter 42. Then in the latter part of chapter 42, we have the brothers giving an account to their father when they returned to Canaan to tell him about what happened and how they were accused of being spies, etc. Uh, and, and then we had uh, later, when uh, sometime later, when Jacob then wants them to go back to Egypt to buy food again, then the brothers once again give an account of what happened in Egypt and how they were accused and how they had to take Benjamin back with them if they were to go back, etc. Uh, so this is actually the fourth account. 
And, and as you read these various accounts of what transpired during that first visit and the discussions and interactions between Joseph and the brothers, it's obvious that these accounts differ. They, they, they contain different things, okay? And uh, it's difficult for us to know uh, exactly which ones of those distinctions and differences are important, okay? I don't think they are contradictory. I think there are. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that's going on is that as the brothers repeatedly have to tell this story, first to their father when they come home, and then to their father again when he wants them to go back to Egypt, uh, and then uh, Judah's accounting of the story here. Uh, each time they tell the story, there are, uh, there are aspects of the story that are important to that particular point to that particular moment, to what they're trying to accomplish. And so that'd be one of the reasons why uh, we get a, a difference in the accounts. Okay, But they don't seem to be contradictory. But at other points, it seems pretty clear that the brothers, or Judah in this case, are leaving out things. Okay, uh, And I don't think that's just simply a difference in, a, in account. I think that Judah is very consciously here leaving out things. And what, what's the most conspicuous thing he's leaving out of this story about their first trip to Egypt? You look like... Okay, uh, they left that out, yeah. But I'm talking now just about their first trip to Egypt. What, when they first came to Egypt, what, what's left out of Judah's account there? Okay, about the money and what else? What, what was the first thing you said? About Simeon and Okay, Simeon. Okay, why did Simeon end up staying? For what? Why? Okay, but why did all that happen? They were accused of being spies, right? That whole part is just blanked out of Judah's account. He doesn't mention any of that, okay? What we see Judah doing is he's, he's being very careful in how he's addressing this great Zaphonath Paneah, okay? He's this great guy. He's, he's had their life in his hands, and there was that whole thing about being accused of being spies and everything, and all that seems to be forgotten, okay? They come back the second time, and they're given a feast, and nothing's said about it, okay? Well, Judah's not about to bring it up now, <laughs> you know? His life is on the line, and he's not about to suggest uh, that Judah go back, to, or Joseph go back to thinking about how he once thought these guys were spies. So that all is left out of the story. So he really picks up the story or the account, Judah picks up the account with the discussion of the family when, Ju- when Joseph was querying the brothers about their family. And that's where Judah picks up the story. And, he, and so he talks about Joseph's and the brothers' interaction about the family and Joseph's insistence that they bring their younger brother down to Egypt. And, the brother, and, and Judah recounts for Joseph... How, he, how they had told Joseph the first time, we can't do this. This is too dangerous. It risks our father's life. Okay? And he reminds Joseph that, uh, that, they, that, that this is a perilous thing. And we told you the first time when we were here how dangerous this is. Okay? Now, one commentator suggests in the, in the New International Commentary, he suggests that what Jude is trying to do, he's trying to pass the blame for this whole affair off onto Joseph that Joseph's the one that's created this problem. I don't think at all that that's what's uh, happening here. I think what, as, we, as you study this speech, what you'll see is that Judah 
has a point that he wants to get to. He has something he wants to accomplish. What is the thing that Judah wants to accomplish by this speech? That Benjamin be free. Okay, by what? By Judah taking his place. By Judah taking his place. So the whole speech is designed to get from point A to point B. And point A is the initial discussions about the family. And point B is Judah making his plea to Joseph to allow him to stand in Benjamin's place. And so the whole speech needs to be seen in that context. And what he wants to do is he wants Joseph to understand why it is important that he allowed Judah to take Benjamin's place. That's the whole point of his speech. So it's not that he's trying to assign blame here. It's not that, he's, that, not that he's trying to shrug anything off here. It's that he wants to move Joseph to such compassion that Joseph will accept his plea to allow him to be surety for Joseph. Or for Benjamin, excuse me. And so that's the, that's the whole point. So he goes back and he starts to recount then this whole discussion. I want you to remember, he says to Joseph, how we've talked about this. And we told you about our aged dad. And you notice, how does he refer to Benjamin? This 23 or 24-year-old young man who's standing right next to him. <laughs> he refers to him as a lad and a little child. Okay? That's an interesting way to refer to a guy who's now in his early 20s. <laughs> okay? But this is how he refers to him. Okay? And, I, and I think what he's doing is he's using every means he can to incite tenderness in Joseph. And he probably recalls very vividly the day before when Joseph had shown such kindness and affection towards Benjamin. And so he's playing on that. But I think there's something else going on there with Judah when he does that. Here's a man who has lost two sons. You know, we've talked a lot about how God takes evil and he turns it to good. And we've seen that in the life of Joseph. We are seeing that in the life of Joseph. But we even see it in the life of Judah. Here is a man who has lost two sons. Now, admittedly, he, he lost those sons because those sons were wicked, because they had sinned against God and God took their lives. And he took them one and then the other. But there is nobody in that whole family who is in a better place to empathize with Jacob at this point than Judah. And so the evil that that Judah has experienced in his own life with the passing first of one son, the taking first of one son, and then the other, there is no one better situated to understand what Jacob is going through having lost a son and facing the possibility of the loss of a second. And so, so Judah speaks here not just out of sympathy for his father Jacob, but he speaks out of real empathy. And I think the tenderness that we see portrayed in the way he refers to him as a little child and as a lad repeatedly calls him the lad, the lad, the lad, as he does that. What we're seeing there is the tenderness 
that we have now in the heart of Judah that stands in such stark contrast to the Judah we saw at Dotham. This is a different man. He has really changed. Now, as you think through this speech, as you look at this speech, who is Judah pleading for? He's pleading for his father. You know, we think he's pleading for Benjamin. No, I mean, that's because he wants to take Benjamin's place, right? But it, the real issue is his father. That's what he keeps coming back to. He keeps talking about his father. He keeps referring to him as your servant, my father. It's no longer even our father. You notice that? Very little, very few comments in here. Very few times does he refer to him as our father. Primarily, he refers to him as my father. And what is striking here about this speech of Judas is, is how he has placed himself in a position to represent Jacob to Joseph or to Zaphonath Paneah. See, that's what he's doing. He has said, okay, my dad isn't here to plead his case. So I'm going to plead his case. And I'm going to do whatever I can do to achieve what my dad would want to achieve if he were standing here. And so really what we see here is that this speech of Judah's is an intercession. It's Judah interceding, certainly on the part of Benjamin, but primarily on the part of Jacob. Now, he's already acknowledged that it's not going to do him much good to plead Benjamin's part. Because in the previous few, a few verses before, when they first came back to the house, he said, you know, what can we do to prove our innocence? You know, we can't do anything. So he can't really plead for Benjamin directly. Okay. Because there's really nothing he can say. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And, and they have no way to disprove that Benjamin took the sack. So there's really nothing he can say. So, so he's just going to leave it looking like Benjamin is guilty of a crime. Because he can't do otherwise. But what he can do is he can plead for his father. Because his father clearly is innocent. And his father is this aged man back in Canaan who has been victimized by all these circumstances that are out of his control. He had a wife and she had two sons and and one son as... As, Jake, as Judah reports Jacob having said in, in this account here, Jacob says, He went out from me. And I said, Surely he is torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. Now, what's interesting to you about the way Jacob said that? The way Jacob reports the loss of Joseph. What verse is that? 28. 28. Yeah. Okay. He reports it from his father's perspective, not... Uh, okay, it's his father's words. Yeah. He's, he's, he's uh, not reflecting it. He could have told the story in a whole different way, but he's reflecting it from his father's understanding. His yeah. father's and what's significant about his father's perspective at this point? 
Okay, he sent him out. Okay. Pardon? Well, yeah, he's not blaming the brothers. Okay, okay. There's something else that seems very subtle here. And seeing sin, he might still be out there. Yes, that's right. That's right. Do you notice that? You notice he doesn't say he's dead. He doesn't say he's dead. In fact, Judah, Jacob has never said Joseph is dead. When the brothers first came back with the garment, he did say, surely he's been torn to pieces. Okay? That's the closest Jacob has ever come to saying, my son is dead. Now, earlier in the passage we're looking at today, Judah said he's dead because that's how the brothers view him. Yeah. So, so Judah believes he's dead, as was reflected in the comments of Reuben earlier when Reuben said, surely, you know, uh, his, his, this is, now comes the reckoning for his blood. And what's interesting is that's the very thing the brothers set out to avoid when they sold him into slavery. First they were going to kill him, and then they were persuaded, you don't want his blood on, our, on your hands. So they went, okay, we don't want his blood on our hands, so we'll just sell him into slavery. So that was their first intent. But now they've reached the conclusion that he's dead. And the reason is because slaves were expendable. You know, I mean, you got as much labor as you could out of them, and then they died. And so after 22 years, you would assume a slave would be dead. And now they realize they really gave Judah or Joseph over to death. And so now they believe he's dead, and they believe that his blood is on their hands. So Judah thinks he's dead. The brothers think he's dead. But Dad can't bring himself to say that. And he says, he says, I sent him out, and he says, I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. He said, that's what I said. And I've not seen him since. And it's like he's kind of leaving the door open a little bit. A little... And you've known people like that, haven't you? And and you have a situation where a a child is lost and and you don't know what happened to him. I can't imagine anything more excruciating. You know, how, how how do you go on with life when there's the uncertainty of what happened to your to your child? You know? Yes? When it finally says that Joseph could not control himself, are you thinking about how that there have been probably times in Judah's speech that Joseph wanted to make, wanted to say something. And he told, I'm wondering if he didn't interrupt Judah at the end, that Judah probably might have kept talking, but Judah, at what point did Joseph yeah. have to It's a good question. And uh, that brings us back to something we didn't talk about. But you notice what it says about how Judah began this speech. What did he do? He approached him. He approached him and he said, May I speak a word, what? In your ears. Now, none of the commentators even address this issue. So, you know, I don't know totally what to make of this. But what it sounds to me like happened is that Judah steps up from the... From his brothers, he separates himself from the brothers. He comes forward to Joseph, which in itself is kind of a threatening thing, which is why he says, you know, don't be angry with me. But he comes forward and he says, can I speak in your ears? And, I, you know, I, I almost get the sense that Judah has pulled Joseph aside. 
This is a private speak. It's, I don't want my brothers to hear this. There's no heroics here. He's not doing this for show. This is a sincere guy. I don't think his brothers have any clue what he's about. I think it seems, it seems to me that his brothers have no clue, not only what he's about to do, but when he's done it, what he's done. He's just pulled Joseph off to the side and whispered in his ear, if you will, you know, or got him off to the side, so to speak. And they've spoken, spoken quietly. And, and, he's, and, he's, and so all this speech is not a loud, you know, wide out and open public thing. But, but the way I envision it, it's, it's quiet. It's over to the side. And it's Judah just pleading for his father. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, still using an interpreter, presumably. Good point, yeah. When I read that, I kind of thought along the line of you. It says we approached. I thought it, you know, like in this setting here, this is a real public kind of thing. I didn't get the idea that it was more a sigh and whispered, but he just stepped up and said, this is more personal. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I want to get with you one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it could be. Anyway, and it's not real clear. And like I said, the commentators that I looked at, none of them addressed that issue. Well... So, uh, so he goes through then his spiel, and he and he he reminds Joseph of the things they talked about, and he reminds him of the father, and he talks about how the life of the father is bound up or wrapped up in the lad's life. He says, and 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 then he creates for Joseph. Now remember. To Judah, this is just Zaphonath Paneah. But to Joseph, this is his brother Judah speaking about his father. And so these words just have to pierce him. As Judah then describes the scenario of returning home to Canaan without vengeance. And Judah, Joseph is imagining in his mind's eye These brothers with their donkeys coming over the horizon. And Jacob has been there waiting anxiously for their return because he's been fretting about Benjamin since the moment he left. And so Jacob is waiting and he gets a report that the brothers are returning. And so he's out there and out there outside of his tent and he's looking over to to his first glimpse of the brothers to see their return. But what's he really looking for? He's going to be looking for Benjamin. And when those brothers show up on the horizon and he starts counting heads, and he only gets ten. Or nine, because Simeon may still be... Yeah, or, or nine, because, yeah, Simeon. So, but, but, but Joseph, is, Joseph is being forced to envision this thing as Judah creates the scenario for him. And he's saying, he's saying when we go home, and, and my father sees that Benjamin is not with us. Because his life is lifed up in the, in the life of the, of, of, of the lad, he says, when he sees that he is not with us, he will die. And, and so, so Judah is, is just trying as hard as he can to get Zaphonath Paneah, this great ruler of Egypt, 
to somehow feel some compassion for his father. And he has no idea of the emotions that he is stirring. But there's something that strikes me about this way that Judah goes about telling the story. Because the whole issue in this story, the point that Judah is trying to drive home to Zaphonath Paneah is that Benjamin is the favored son. Benjamin is the preferred son. Benjamin is the one in whom my father's life is wrapped up. And that is the central core of Judah's plea to Joseph. That's a changed man. Here is a guy who is desperately trying to save his father's life. Here is a man who is desperately trying to save his father, protect his father from an incomprehensible evil. He's desperately trying to do it. And now, at this point in Judah's life, the fact that he is second in his father's affections is of no issue. The most important thing he do is that he save his dad's life. And that he keep his dad from experiencing what he has already experienced, the loss of his second son. Martin Luther says this about this speech of Judas. I would give very much to be able to pray to our Lord God as well as Joseph, as well as Judah prays to Joseph here. For it is a perfect specimen of prayer. The true feeling that there ought to be in prayer. Jude is a classic example here of what it means to intercede. His own interests, his own concerns, his own passions, he lays those all aside, doesn't he? In order that he could plead for another. And he throws his whole heart into it. He throws his whole passion into it. And he's completely indifferent to his own well-being. His own well-being, he's actually willing to sacrifice if he can just succeed in interceding for Jacob. I know of no other example in Scripture that parallels the petition of Judah here, except to one obviously being Christ Himself and the other being Paul in Romans 9 when he says, I wish myself accursed that my people could be saved. Judah is outstanding here. And his, his petition, his plea to Joseph, whom he does not know to be Joseph, is such 
an example to us of what we can aspire to in prayer. When we pray for these people that we pray for every week, to somehow get to a point where we could pray for people like Judah prays for his father. Where we can intercede like Judah intercedes. Where we, where we could think, how can I move the Heavenly Father to compassion? Not that we have to, but that's clearly what Judah's doing here. He's trying to figure out a way to ignite Zaphonath Panea's compassion for his father. So he's trying to paint this picture so Zaphonath Panea could understand it. And, and, and if, if that could be the way, if I could learn to pray like that, as Martin Luther says, if I, if I could learn to pray like that, if I could learn to pray in such a way that I could, that I could incite in the Heavenly Father compassion for the people for whom I'm praying. But to do so, what Judah is doing here, and this is another quote from Thomas Whitelaw, commentator in the pulpit commentary, says, In behalf of the one whom he knew was preferred higher in the place of his father's affection than himself, he was willing to renounce his liberty rather than see his aged father die of a broken heart. And so, not only is the prayer of Judah or the plea or the petition of Judah here a classic example to us of prayer, but of course also at this point Judah becomes a type of Christ, doesn't he? What does it take to become a type of Christ? It takes a man who has been so transformed by the power of God and the circumstances that God has brought into and through his life. He has been so transformed that he has finally learned to place the needs and the concerns of others over himself. And he has reached a point where he has said, I will be a slave for the rest of my life. I will forfeit my family. I will agree never to see my son again. I will agree to have all of my life energies and all of my strength expended to make a wealthy man richer. Just so I never have to look on the grief of my father. And just so my younger brother, my favored, preferred younger brother, can go home free to my father. And this is where 
This is what Judah has come to. Now, remember clear back in Genesis 37 when we were talking about all the competition and the conflict between Judah and his older brothers. I mean, between Joseph and his older brothers. And Joseph gets this this magnificent coat that's really a, a coat of almost a regal coat that he's given to wear. And, 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 and what, is the, what is the greatest issue here that's at stake in chapter 37 to the brothers? It's that Joseph, the first son of Rachel, but the 11th born in the family, is apparently going to be the heir apparent. Right? Who ends up the heir apparent? Who ends up the one with the scepter to rule over the nation? It's Judah. So with all the fretting and all the worrying about Joseph being the preferred son, even with all the potential that Benjamin is going to be the preferred son, it's not Joseph who's the preferred son. It's not... It's not Benjamin who ends up the preferred son, but it's Judah of whom Jacob eventually prophesies and says, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Okay, yes, because two sons. He ended up with double portion for his sons. God chose Judah. Exactly right. Yeah. God chose Judah. And so what we have... Ultimately, finally, we have in Judah an example of the true son of Judah, who himself poured out his life, gave up his life in order that you and I could go free. And he did it as Judah did it for love for his father. The true son of Judah did it for the love of his father. And you and I are now able to walk free because of the true son of Judah. The anti-type of the type. Well, next week, we'll see how all of this affects Joseph.